All right, Mr. Kronjäger, let's start with your um, your first connection with photography. Let's begin there. That that begins in Nor that begins in in uh, Germany, uh, way back in the. Uh, uh, <coughs> When would that be? Uh, uh, 1914. Well, I'll just leave the date out. You can give it to me later. 18, 1898. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that, <coughs> that goes way back to about 1898. Mm -hmm. And uh, perhaps even further than that. <coughs> My father bought me a, a small camera, an old wooden box made in Braunschweig. <laughs> mm -hmm. and they, Excuse me, the sound's going to pick up on there, so I'll take this. That's it. You go. All right. I, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Your father brought you a small camera. <clears throat> that was made in Braunschweig by uh, old Vorklander. Mm -hmm. And uh, it had a ground glass in it and a, a double anesthetic uh, metal lens. Mm -hmm. And it was four by five. And uh, that was a Christmas present, and from that time on, I was wrapped up in photography, and anything in this entire life, my entire life would always be photography. I used to run all over the different little towns in Germany photographing. <laughs> then what was your first? <clears throat> Do you remember seeing uh, motion pictures as a boy? Do you remember? Do you have any clear recollections of those? And uh, my only hope then was to come to America with that little camera and do something over here. <laughs> well, I landed in New York, and, and uh, my two uncles, John and Henry, uh, met me at the boat. The boat was an old, old sailing vessel, a seagoing uh, freighter. And uh, my uh, captain, the captain, the name of the captain was Rennie Garode. And we took about four weeks to cross, and um, it was quite a trip. I was sick for four days until the the other the men, uh, the rough men on board of the sailing vessel came down to my cabin and got a hold of me and took me up on deck to get some fresh air. And uh, from that time on, I stayed on deck until we re uh, for a week or two, nights and days, until we reached New York Harbor. I felt very good. I don't know what they gave me to eat, but they gave me something that <laughs> made me feel awfully good. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> that was that. Then we landed in New York, and I in Castle Garden, and my two uncles, John and uh, uh, John and, and Henry, uh, and. <clears throat> And, uh... You go to live with them at first, is what? that it? Yeah. And, uh... <clears throat> as, as I walked down the gang plant, I can remember that. It was old, a very old, uh, single-handed, rackety-shack sort of thing. And, 
almost fell overboard, and then uh, I could see my my two uncles waving with their sticks with a handkerchief tied on it. Boy, was that a feeling! I'll never forget that. <clears throat> and then uh, they put their arms around me, and we had uh, some very affectionate embraces, and. Uh, they grabbed all of me, and then we went through uh, the costumes, which didn't take very long. It seemed to be all fixed up for me, and we just walked right through the gate and out. And there was New York with its castle garden. And the, my one of my uncles said, "Are you hungry?" I said, "Yes." I said, "Like the then there was a man with a banana stand there." And I said, "What are those things?" I said, "They're bananas. Don't you have them in Germany?" I said, "Well, in the big cities, but not where I'm. <laughs> not from uh, Klausdal uh, in the Hartz Mountains." <clears throat> and so he said, "Well, let's get some." So we went over, and we he bought a, a bunch of bananas. And they put theirs in their pocket, and I kept eating bananas. They would just happen to be ripe. Thanks for that today, because I'd have, if they hadn't have been ripe, I would have been eating green bananas. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> and we, uh, they had a, they had an old, uh, a coach with two horses, a, uh, a son, uh, what is it? What do you call those wagons with the tassels on it? Oh, a surrey. A surrey. Yeah. They came down with a surrey, yeah. and they were they uh, they each had a cane and white gloves, and uh, there we were, my two uncles and myself with two bananas in <laughs> each hand, driving through the streets of uh, New York, southern New York, all the way up to uh, Kosciuszko Street in Brooklyn. And that's where my uncle's home was. And uh, that I think that's enough of that. For a while now, well, let's go into photography. <clears throat> that's been my whole life. All right. Now, uh, what did you do to get back into photography in this country? Well, I took uh, I took a position with uh, my uncles around the. Uh, they were in the wholesale wine merchant. They were wine merchants. <clears throat> they used to buy 30,000 gallons of wine, a whole shipload full of wine, and bottle it and sell it in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, but good wine, uh, right, good uh, good old German wine wines, uh, Liebfrauen milk and oh, Bernkastler yeah. Doctor and such things as that. Yeah. And... Um, after that, I didn't I didn't like very much the association with the wine uh, wine business, and uh, I took my camera and went to a photographer in New York City. Her name is Hall Hall Studio in New York on Broadway, and this it was my desire to uh, to see what I could do with my photography. Well, I took my little camera and all my all the little pictures I shot in Germany, and they made such a hit with this Mr. Hall, the owner. The, he was a very elderly man. It, however, the Hall Studio in New York was a very big studio. They were uh, photographing only the big stars in their studio and making flashlights of all the big shows. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, and uh, I suppose they, he thought I was me being six foot two and my photographs they must have looked pretty good to him. So he said, "Well, you can go to work here right away." He said, "Can you start tomorrow?" And <laughs> so I went back to my uncle, and he says, "I'll come." He said, "Don't you like it here anymore?" He says, "No, I like this better." <laughs> <laughs> so my uncle came with me he, because at that time I couldn't talk very much English yeah. and um, I couldn't speak very much English. Maybe I really I ought to go to school right now and get some <laughs> good lessons. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well anyway, and all these things uh, always made me feel excellent, way up. I was always in high spirits. and. And um, where were we? Then you worked for a while with Hall, is that right? Then I started to work for this George P. Hall. He was an Englishman who came from London uh, 20 years ago, and he was a very high-class photographer in London, and he began and threw Daniel Froman and Simon Lee Schubert. He came to New York as an, on an invitation to do photography of all the New York shows which they would produce. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was where I come in. That was where Mr. Hall made good use of me. Yeah. <laughs> and boy, I'll never forget the days making those flashlights at night <clears throat> on a dress rehearsal lasting from Saturday night till Wednesday morning and never leaving the theater for one minute, sleeping and yeah. eating there, including the, the production managers. And um, that was uh, that putting on a production after dress rehearsal in New York in those times was a, a nip and tug, uh, as there was always short of money, and they were always working short on money. Yeah. Do you remember some of the big shows that you worked <coughs> on? Just imagine today. Could you imagine who, uh, what photographer today can imagine such a thing as for me to? Uh, pack up in the studio a 20 by 20, 120 by 24 camera with plates in them, which weigh a ton, and a 1417 camera made by a Farmer and Swing, and an 8 by 10 camera made by Eastman, and uh, that was the smallest. There was 8 by 10. 11, 14, 14, 17, and 20, 24, and those were the four cameras that I would have to set up on four platforms which were covered on the bottom of eight by ten wooden platforms covered with velvet on the bottom on which these cameras would be put in different parts of the theater. The eight by ten would be put close to and the 1114 a little further away and the 1417 over on towards the right and the 20 by 24 would only shoot the general whole theater with a, I remember well, with a Ross lens of a 20 inch focal length. <clears throat> now in order to make it, uh, the plates at that time, the Eastman plates or the uh, which we were using at that time, we used the highest speed possible, and that was only at the speed of 8 or 10. And you can imagine the amount of powder, flashlight powder, that we would have to use. We used, for each 20 by 24, we would use 2 pounds of flash powder uh, 40 feet away 
on a on a ring, a metal ring. We would uh, spread this powder on both sides, and when the entire group on the finale would be posed by the director, and then you say, "Let's go," and that's the shot. And off would go two pounds of powder, <laughs> and God help you, <laughs> heaven help you. And after that, everyone would leave the theater for about one hour <laughs> before making another shot. Now will you thank the General Electric for their lovely bulbs, their beautiful flash bulbs. <clears throat> then, then you worked with Hall for about how long? I did this work for George B. Hall for seven years, traveling throughout the United States, London. We, we used to take trips to London photographing uh, Daniel Froman's productions, the Barrymore productions in London, <coughs> uh, in Sarah Bernhardt in Paris, and uh, photographing these productions in Europe so that we would uh, precede the uh, advertising over here, we would send these films over and bring them over with us and then we would be ready before the English productions would be brought over to America. What was it like working with Sarah Bernhardt? Was she cooperative <clears throat> or was she very temperamental? May, may I say this uh, sure. uh, for a uh, uh, little imposition? Uh, I was the first cameraman that made a movie test picture of Sarah Bernhardt. Oh, really? As she was trying to go into the movies against her will. Yeah. But uh, the test came out very lovely, very nice, but uh, uh, she wasn't uh, feeling well enough to go on with the movies. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I'm not sure whether she ever made any movies. I know there were some made in Paris, yeah. which were bought by Adolf Zucker and brought over here, and which was the entree of Adolf Zucker's first coming into the American motion picture industry, producing and showing a um, a foreign French picture, Sarah Bernhardt, in her best role, made in France in a movie. Mm -hmm. And that movie was brought over here by Adolf Zucker, and that was his beginning. When and he ran that in the 8th Avenue Theater in New York City for, oh, possibly if I remember, for a year or a year and a half. And that was the entrance, and I remember very well Adolf Zucker, the little, small, tiny, little bit of an office he had with Albert Kaufman and his stenographer sitting, typing away there in the Times building, I think it was the 10th floor. Uh -huh. I never forget that. And my hopes were high when I entered that office <laughs> as a cameraman, as I was working then with uh, Edison. Edison, I think it was Edison or Tannhäuser. And um, I just uh, went into the office to keep in, in touch with the general uh, progressive elements in the motion picture industry, and Adolf Zucker at that time was the, a new one. I had read an article in the Times saying that he was possibly going to make some con pictures, motion pictures, with uh, con in connections with Daniel Foreman. Mm -hmm. 
And that's how he started, in connection with Daniel Froman, using the stars which were on vacation during the summer on pay, and then Absuka marches in and uses those stars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I suppose for a little extra money, but something. Yeah. That was the deal between Adolf Zucker and Daniel Froman. And they made movies, and good movies, very, very excellent ones. They yeah. got some, I forget the name of some of the writers, but they produced some very excellent very high class, in fact, they produced the best. Yeah. And that's what made Paramount go up, 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 and they never lost a foothold. Yeah. Uh, producing good pictures at that time, yeah. which was difficult. Mm -hmm. Mr. Kronjager, uh, <coughs> where, where did you test Sarah Bernhardt? Was that in New York? In New York Paris? City, in a 48th Street Theater, which was an independent little bit of a theater. Because the, I forget who, who I made the test for, whether it was, uh, uh, a test of me, I think it was a test of me at the same time showing what I could do. I think it was a test of me to enter Paramount uh, Pictures mm -hmm. to get. When would it have been? Around 1912 or so? Or was uh, it earlier or later? I, remember? It, uh, I'd have to look mm -hmm. that up. Yeah. Do you remember <coughs> what sort of a, a role uh, Sarah was uh, testing no. out in? Or how no, it, it's just a little 200-foot uh, dramatic scene, very dramatic, I remember. Yeah. She impressed me so much with her acting that I almost slowed down on the <laughs> in yeah. my... At that time, we still turned the camera by handle. Yeah. What a lot of fun that was, to crank that camera. <laughs> yeah. what, what was your cranking speed? I'd like to make a movie today with the old type of... Uh, uh, Pate camera crank with a handle. Well, what did you, what, at what speed did you crank, Mr. Cognac? Okay, the, that, the speed of that at that time was 16 to 1, 16 to 1. 16 to 1, yeah. 16 pictures, and that, that, would, that would mean you count. At that time, all cameramen would count 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, and that was the time. Yeah. And you can go to some of the old cameramen, any of them, and any one of them will count a second for three minutes and not miss two seconds. No. Now, do you want to try that now? <laughs> All right. Huh? I'll try it. <clears throat> now, go ahead. Okay. Now, you have to give me the time on your watch. Oh. Yeah, fine. you tell you, you, you look at your watch. <clears throat> Say go. All right. And one, and two, and three, and four, five, and six, seven, and Eight and nine and ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, one, two, twenty three, twenty four, twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven, eight, twenty nine, thirty, thirty one, two, three, thirty four, five, thirty six, seven, thirty eight, thirty nine, forty one. 42, 43, 44, 5, 46, 47, <coughs> 8, 9, 10, 51, 52, 3, 4, 5, 56, 57, 58, 9, 60. Perfect. On the dot? <laughs> yes. Really? <laughs> yes. I'll have to buy you a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now tell me how you first. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's interesting. Yeah. Now you get you walk around the street and get some and, and get people for uh, twenty-five cents. If you can count a minute, I'll give you a quarter. <laughs> and you try try that with some of the directors or some of the cameramen. Yeah. And you find that that's not very hard. That takes a very fine uh, equilibrium mentally. Your nerves have to be in very good shape to yeah. do that. Mm -hmm. Now tell me how you first got <coughs> started with Edison. That was your first connection with the industry, wasn't it? Or was there something before? <coughs> well, after after I uh, photographed for George B. Hall, which was the, really the delight of my entire life, to photograph all those lovely, wonderful, beautiful stars like Blanche Ring and Trixie Piganza, and I can't just think of the name of the man. But what is your name again? George. George. Yeah. George surprised me here with a setup, and I'm not prepared at all, but I do the best I can. Oh, you're doing beautifully. <laughs> now, l let me see, what is it? Uh, how'd you get first get into the mo into motion pictures? Well, let me see. We are now at George B. Hall on Broadway <coughs> and 42nd Street. Knickerbocker Hotel is right on the corner, right next door to the George B. Hall Studios, the world's greatest studio at that time. There was no studio which had the equipment that this Mr. Hall had. Mm -hmm. Because he had to know, he had, we had to do uh, pictures like Mother Goose. Uh, two or three dress rehearsals. Now, Mother Goose, made by Claw and Erlanger, would be maybe a $800,000 million production. And we used to take two weeks photographing that. One, and then finally a dress rehearsal. All the time they were working, changing costumes and things. And that was, uh, that was the most interesting uh, part of my life, to do all that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we would travel. We would get an order overnight to go to, uh, uh, to go to a large mount to a little theater or travel mm -hmm. where they would open. They wouldn't open, they wouldn't have the nerve to open in New York. They'd open some little outside town, so we would have to go up there and make our flashlights. Mm -hmm. And what a job that was. You come pull in uh, in the rain there at 8 o'clock at night and get all your camera equipment through the rain into the theater, set up and ready to go about 12 o'clock at night. And you don't leave the theater until you're through Tuesday morning. <laughs> <coughs> yes, sir. And Sam, I remember Sam and Lee Schubert didn't leave the theater for three nights and three days. Hmm. They had a bed brought in. They were hard workers, and anything Sam and Lee Schubert ever did in New York, they surely deserved the credit. And more power to them. I don't know where they are now. I don't know. <laughs> I'd like to read about them. Uh, <coughs> now, tell about getting into movies. Well, after my experiences with Hall as a photographer there, by the way, while I was at Hall, I had to run away. I could use what plates I wanted. I could fix my own powder. I'd make my own implements to shoot the powder off and all those different uh, manipulations. And uh, from there, when I remember, <coughs> oh, how I come? Well, then one day, Mr. Edwin S. Porter of the Edison Studio sent his uh, star, one of his stars, or two of his stars, to the whole studio, and I photographed them, and we got talking, and they said, hmm, uh, pretty good. They looked at the proofs, and they said, well, why don't you come in, uh, you ought to go in the movies. We're all going in the movies. Most of the stars are trying to go in the movies, but there aren't enough movies to go around to go into. <laughs> so, uh, but there was only one or two little companies. The Edison, was, Edison company had just started. Yeah. And uh, 
<clears throat> well, there were a lot of little shasta companies that I'm sorry to have to say the, the name used the word that word, but that that's the way it was. Yeah. And there were a lot of little up and down companies which didn't mean anything. So, uh, but however, the name of Edison always stood out. I I read all about his life, and that became very interesting to me. And it struck me like a bolt of lightning when the the man, the lady who had a portrait made, and he says, now you come on up and see Mr. Edmund S. Porter and you tell him I sent you. Because I was always on the lookout for better and higher and bigger and better things. And I had been at Horse for seven years and it became quite a sort of routine. So I said, when this lady said to me, you come on up and see Mr. Edmund S. Porter at the Edison's, studio, which was only down at 23rd Street, which was a little bit of a place, a small loft on the fourth floor in 21st Street, some old building. There's where Edison had a studio, and that's where they made the, uh, the that's where Edwin S. Porter made the uh, great train robbery. That was his biggest picture he made, and that picture made such a hit with the audience that the Somehow or other, the audience boasted that so much to Edison or some, something happened that Edison built on the strength of that, seeing the lighting on the wall that movies were coming in, that Edison then, on the strength of that, built the Edison studio. That was a half a million dollar, I think a half a million dollar studio up there. Mm -hmm. Concrete, the first concrete studio ever made, built in New York City, and that was really some studio. That was something. And uh, <clears throat> so I went, uh, that uh, suggestion struck me like a bolt of lightning. And uh, the next day or two days later, I went up to see Mr. Porter and I took all my photographs, all my great big uh, 16 by 20 uh, enlargements of the 20 by 24, uh, uh, 20 by 24 contact prints, that's what we had, and we also had the enlargements of all the smaller films. Anyway, I took to Mr. Porter some big show, and he says, you can start right now. I says, well, I, then he says, what about salary? I says, I'll leave that entirely up to you. I just love to, I like the name of Thomas Edison, and I think whatever he's implicated in, I think I'm <laughs> willing to go along with. So I can learn from you, and, uh, and uh, so uh, salary is up to you. And he says, well, I'll, I'll take, uh, how about $40 a week? I said, well, that's perfectly okay. <laughs> so that was my first salary, $40 a week. Was that more than you were making at Hall, or not? Uh, that, Hall? that was less. less Hall paid me $80 a yeah. week. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. uh, at Hall Studio, I got $80 a week. Yeah because there, there weren't many cameramen that, that were, really there weren't many cameramen, there were a lot of studios, but there weren't any cameramen that would, uh, because it, it implicates an awful bunch of expense when you go and shoot a lot of, uh, when you shoot uh, at least $50 worth of plates yeah. and $30 worth of flash powder mm -hmm. and all the expense of yeah. setting up your equipment. Then sure. you come home and you got all overtime, undertime and everything, and my plates were just right to the dot. Why? Because I never shot a shot in my life unless I made a test before. Mm -hmm. When you want to do a good job, you better go and use some plates and use some Eastman material and make some tests and yeah. then go and do your job. Yeah. <laughs> but don't run out on the job with a lot of plates 
at different speeds yeah. and look at your your swindle sheets which don't mean a thing. Your test means the thing. You still have to test it. Yeah. Only here the other day I had an important party come to me to make a little portrait, a friend of mine, and I made tests the day before. Why? Because I've never had used Eastman Royal Pan and there was something new and uh, let me tell you right now, right here now, that Eastman Royal Pan is it. <laughs> boy, oh boy, I could shoot my shot at a hundred part of a second, or two hundred portraits shot at five hundred part of a second. How you like that? Wonderful. That's the only way to shoot a portrait. All that old stuff from making portraits at the open and shut camera that's out. Mm -hmm. All portraits must be shot at at least five, uh, two hundred part of a second. Yeah. Then why? Why? Because you get sharp image, you get retain the expression, no, no no movement of any kind. Mm -hmm. Tell me what it was like now, Mr. <coughs> Cohen Yeager, uh, beginning to work at Edison. What did you do there? Did you, w and was Porter the only <coughs> director there or not? Or were there others? After Edwin S. Porter engaged me downtown, I fooled around in the downtown studio, just coming in there, watching him work. He said, I said, Mr. Porter, well, you don't give me anything to do. I said, no, you just stay here. There's a lot for you to comprehend before you start to do anything with the cameras. You just come here, come here, two, three, four. I want you to come here until we close this place. When we get into the new studio, then I'll put you on a camera, not before. Yeah. How can I put you on a camera? It costs money to shoot from. You, yeah. you, you don't, you, so there you are. So I played along with Mr. Porter down in the old studio uh, the, the studio itself was uh, 12 by 16 feet and 10 feet high. The ceiling was 10 feet high. Well, what did we have in the studio? Well, we had Aristo lamps, if you know what they are. Those are arc lamps in a glass globe. And uh, that's what he used. And he had 24 of those arc lamps running in two sections. Which you can jiggle them a little sideways, but most all the movies that Porter shot were shot with 24, sometimes 12, sometimes 24 Aristo arc lamps burning while the shooting is going on. No trick lighting, no fancy lighting, no shadow lighting, nothing. Just beautiful sharp light from the top, mm -hmm. all top light. Mm -hmm. And then later we added some lights on the stand. But then when we got to the studio, we, we became, uh, we adopted more of the, and that's what Porter, I believe, I really sincerely can say this truthfully, that I really think that he engaged me because he wanted some photographic angles like we get in the studio mm -hmm. on portrait angles. Yes. That's what, because he knew it was going in bigger productions and that, that uh, but but still, when we came to the, <clears throat> when the new studio was finished, the entire studio, which is about uh, 150 feet wide and uh, oh, 100 foot deep, and uh, very high, uh, 75 feet high skylight, and which admitted 100% daylight, and we used we we used the arresto lamps for snapping, snapping up the mm -hmm. pictures, the yeah. highlight. Yeah. And then then we we began to I suggested to have some stand lamps for backlighting and lighting backgrounds and we did all that.
And then we got to the point where we used side lighting mm -hmm. and uh, getting portrait lights, and that was the beginning of, mm -hmm. of uh, well, maybe other people did it too, I don't know what they did in Paris. Yep. The Gaumont people, I remember the Gaumont people went working in Paris and another French consign was working there. I remember the, I remember seeing a French photographer in New York. He was shooting movies for Paris Studios, and he had that old little Gaumont box mm -hmm. with two perforations in the thing. And here we were with the Edison camera with perforations on both sides. Mm -hmm. I believe that's where Edison came in, making the perforations continuously an eighth of an inch apart and on both sides. Mm -hmm. And they, those perforations would grab would be grabbed by a reel, by two reels. One reel to hold them tight and the other one reel to pull them down. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was, uh, and Edison made it possible then with those perforations to make motion pictures and speed them up to 16 and 24 and 60 a minute. Mm -hmm. We ran them as high as 60 and sometimes we even later on, after I was there three years, I think we ran them up what they call today high speed. We ran them up to 200 a minute. Hmm. But then we found we had to have heavier film. And then Eastman corresponded with DuPont and DuPont made a heavier film. And that was the motion, I think that's the motion picture film today. Heavy, so to hold uh, heavy in body. When you first went to Addison, the Addison studio, was Porter doing the directing and the camera work? <coughs> Edwin S. Porter was the sole uh, responsible party. He was the whole thing. He was the producer, the selector of stories, and often, in fact, most of the time, writing his own stories, mm -hmm. with maybe possibly a little help from a writer here to here and there. Mm -hmm. And um, but Porter. Uh, selected the pictures, produced them, directed them, and developed them. Mm -hmm. When I went with Porter in the Edison studio, the, the opening of the new Edison studio, Edwin S. Porter and I were the only two men there. And mm -hmm. he was the producer and director, and I was supposed to just run the camera. But I wasn't really called a cameraman. That that thing wasn't known yet. Mm -hmm. The name cameraman didn't wasn't known yet. Mm -hmm. That only became known in all oh, ten years later. Mm -hmm. Today, when you say cameraman, you know the fellow is working in the studio getting a thousand dollars a week. Mm -hmm. I hope so. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, you remember the names of some of the actors who are working with yeah. uh, with Porter at that time? Oh, God, I'd have to kind of look that up. Well, oh, that's all right. Never mind. I'll, I'll get uh, Laura Sawyer uh, and Saul Dolly was an, a co-director with Porter, but... Uh, um, when did no, let, let me, let me say this. This, I think, should be, should be very interesting right. to show you how hard people, especially fellows, how sincere Porter worked yeah. for the Edison Company. And... Um, <coughs> Uh, we'd come to the studio at 8 in the morning, that was our time, at 8 in the morning, and, and I would walk in, Porter would be already there. Yep. 
And then the next morning I would try to beat him to it, and I would have feel kind of guilty and said, maybe I better come a little earlier. So I did, and, they said, and after that I always was there before him. <laughs> <laughs> and we used to kill about that. He said, well, tomorrow I'll beat you. Now, what did we have in the studio? Well, we had uh, <clears throat> Edwin S. Porter, producer, director, and cameraman, supervisor, and I just ran the, ran the camera mm -hmm. by, with a handle. <clears throat> And that camera was made by Edwin S. Porter personally in Edison's machine shop in Orange, New Jersey, a very large plant, oh, with five or six or eight thousand employees in uh, the different departments making batteries and electrical appliances. <coughs> and. Uh, And um, let me see, where were we? Or, uh, you're talking about, oh, <coughs> you said who was in the studio? It was uh, you. And yeah, and we'd come in the studio at yeah. 8 o'clock. <coughs> and um, Edwin Porter, the first thing he'd say to me, all right, Henry, set up the camera on stage, all right in the middle of the stage. We only had one stage. The stage was big and wide and long and deep, one stage. <coughs> Scenery all in background. The lights would all be all, uh, the Aristo lamps were all hung up stationary, and we would set the sets according to the lights hung. We would always set the sets in the same place. But later, five, two or three years later, we would make all the lights were made movable, so we could light little rooms, more, more, more places, mm -hmm. more like today. <coughs> well. After I would set up the camera, the actors would come in. <coughs> we would have the maybe maybe five or six actors and maybe two or three extras. That's all we would have. Yeah. <coughs> and then the pictures which we would make would take uh, all four days, not any longer. And they would they would be uh, I think one reelers, and they would uh, call they would be pre they would be shown in town for a nickel. They were real Nickelodeon pictures. And we would make one a week or two a week sometimes. Sometimes we'd make two a week. <coughs> and and we would use some scenes in the studio and we would use half the scenes outdoors. Why? Because we found that uh, <coughs> uh, mingling outdoor scenes with indoor scenes would be, would be much more interesting to the audience. Mm -hmm. And most of our scenes were made around Hartsdale, Scarsdale, the Bronx in New York, Ramapu Mountains, Adirondack Mountains, and places nearby. Why too much money to travel? Because I think the pictures didn't uh, weren't, uh, didn't cost any more than five or two or three or four or five, uh, any more than $8,000. That was the limit to a production, I think. <coughs> mm -hmm. Now, but we would shoot an awful lot of film. We would shoot scenes again and again to make sure to get good takes. And uh, <clears throat> then after doing a day's work, possibly in the morning, we would work all day, all day in the studio and if it would become about three o'clock, Porter would say, well, that's all for today in the studio. We get all the studio things. We can't go outdoors today, but Everybody, everybody here in the studio at six o'clock in the morning. We're going to uh, Ramapu Mountains by carriage. 
There were no automobiles. I remember once or twice we went by carriage. But uh, two, two months after we were head the studio, then we, the Edison Company, they supplied a very large uh, Winton, a 24-room uh, automobile, room for 24 in there, a Winton, an old Winton. Mm -hmm. And boy, did she pop up steam when we'd go up a hill. Whoa, boy. <laughs> <laughs> many a delays and many a uh, trips, a little stopping off in little towns to fix the motor. Oh. <laughs> but we had a very good chauffeur, though. He was hired by the Edison place over there, and he was very good. He could take his whole auto apart and put them back together again. <laughs> I remember one time we were stuck in the sand, we put in an axle there, and, and we always carried extra axles. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Because the roads at that time were not very good. And um, now, coming home from the Ramapu Mountains at 8 o'clock at night, Porter would say, Henry, you can have dinner with me. We'll go down to the corner here. Uh, Porter <coughs> was a bachelor. Uh, and we go down the corner here, which was a very good restaurant. Uh, and we would eat our dinner there, and then we would go right back into the darkroom and develop, Porter and I would develop all the film. And he himself would wrap each roll, and he wouldn't trust me because I'd finger mark. He said, no, you get your fingers all over it, and then we'll have spots on the screen. So he would wind the reels on large drums, uh, a developing drum, which was uh, the developing drum, was uh, eight feet in diameter, and uh, oh, about eighteen feet or something around. Great big large drums, about eight feet high. They looked to me eight feet high. They were set high, and we would uh, turn that drum for twenty minutes to develop it. Then we, <clears throat> then we'd lift that drum out and put it into another tank. And we really should have movies of that system today, you, and then see the way they develop films today. And we would have to lift this drum from the water, from the developing to the wash, and from the wash to the hypo. Three great big tanks in a room, uh, 75 feet long and tw 20 feet high and 15 feet uh, deep. And thrust three, three, uh, one drum each time we could handle. And by the time we would put the one drum into the um, developing rack, then we would get another drum ready. Mm -hmm. And you should see, Mr. A I wish you could see, have a movie of Porter winding all the film by hand on these big drums. <laughs> and I wish you could see us lifting those big drums, which would weigh about 100, 200, 150 pounds, 100 pounds anyway lift them from one to the other with the water dripping down all over the floor with us ru having rubber boots on so we wouldn't slide over the place. <laughs> and when we get through with the dark home, boy, we were some sight. Rubber aprons, 10 foot long, and the rubber boots and everything, and, and um, gloves we didn't need. And then, <clears throat> that was that, and after the firm would be fixed, we'd have to keep in between all this operation, we'd have to take the drum, which is now in the high bowl, and put it into the wash drum, which would permit us to go through two doors, but we couldn't, we... And then we would have to wi uh, wrap all those drums, 
rewind them onto a drying rack, which were flat. These drying ranks were flat. And then, two years later, they discarded the drums and they used all flat, flat tanks. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of the tank system. Mm -hmm. uh, flat tanks, 200 feet on each rack to go deep into a six-foot-deep developing tank. That was just very much implemented. And the minute Mr. Porter did that, <coughs> discarded those, and all the other little farms who were start beginning to come into vogue, they they all discarded their drums. Mm -hmm. The drums were thrown out in three months. There were no more drums. Mm -hmm. That happened just overnight. Everybody smelled a rat. <laughs> Everybody was copying the other fellow. What they in the biograph doing? What the Edison doing? Go up and snoop around there. And <clears throat> I never forget. Well, those were the days. Uh, oh, then uh, I can tell you some stories about how the bio biograph started. <coughs> after Edison, after Thomas Edison was just beginning <coughs> uh, to go full swing, then they began to engage other companies. And from one company that Edwin S. Porter and myself was running, that was one company, then they engaged Saul S. Dawley as the second uh, company. Mm -hmm. And after he was shooting for one year, we were so successful in making and producing and distributing these nickel pictures, then they began two more companies. That was in five years' time. After I was there five years, they had four companies, all in the Edison studio, all under the supervision of Edwin S. Porter. You couldn't do a thing unless he'd say, you go here or you go there or you do this or the story is good or it's no good. He was the sole personality of that whole, they had faith in him. Yeah. Because he was the one that built it up. He made the great train robber, and that was the fundament of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. It's what the people liked. Did he ever say much about having made the uh, great train robbery? Did, did he ever discuss it with you? or? No, uh, that, that was too bad. I think if I'd have come there about six months earlier, I would have been making the great train robbery. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, with everything. <laughs> well, that's all in a way, but I'm satisfied with what I did. Yeah. I'm satisfied with my uh, associations with the Edwin S. Porter and the Edison companies and all the other companies. Do you remember any of the big uh, productions that you particularly worked on with uh, at Edison under Porter? What? Do you remember any of the, the big productions that you uh, worked on? You have them all on record. Oh yeah. For uh -huh. one, for then, then they be, then they engaged the uh, the business became so big with Edison that they had to get a manager for the studio because too many things going on, too many carpenters, too many things, too much film coming in, going out, too much going on. So they, they engaged uh, Howard uh, S. Plimpton as manager, and he mm -hmm. was sole manager of the studio under Porter's supervision. Yeah. Porter still was the boss. Mm -hmm. Now, how come that uh, Porter left Edison? Well, 
uh, I don't know what his salary was. Uh, I suppose he got fairly good salary, but I don't know what it was. And anyway, Port Ardan, there were a lot of little companies beginning to come into the business. They all saw the handwriting on the wall. And the imp, I think it was the imp company that offered Edwin S. Porter half ownership if he would come over to them and make pictures with them, for them. And he did that, Porter did that. Mm-hmm. And Porter went over, left Edison, and uh, we gave him a great big dinner and presented him with a golden watch and a golden chain and hooray and uh, good luck to you. <laughs> and the Edison Company wished Porter very good luck. And that was that. Do you ever recall uh, Porter either moving his camera in close to an actor during a <coughs> Do you recall that many times? Did he ever do it? Make we, did that, we did that once uh, in Florida. We had a dolly, and I think Porter built the dolly himself, but he used it in Florida for these first scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were in Florida, Porter, uh, when do- uh, I was in Florida with Sarlatt Dolly, that was the second company. And Porter let me go with the second company because uh, I had the experience and Dolly didn't. Dolly yeah. only had directing experience, but yeah. I had all the movie experience. So Porter put me with Dolly and you two go down to Florida and shoot ten pictures. Ten. We were there the whole winter. What a time we had. Dining and winding everywhere. Royally, presidents, vice presidents, Lord knows what. What a life. <laughs> I wouldn't change it for taking a trip on Pierpoint Morgan's yacht. Really? That poor fellow, you know about that? Well, I, I happen to know uh, Pierpoint Morgan. I met him personally once, but I never took any pictures with him. But uh, I heard around in his office that he had to spend a million dollars to buy a yacht to have a good time, and he never had a good time. Oh. When he bought bought the million dollar yacht, he, he, gave his, he traveled all over the world have a good time, and he never did, because his, his party that he gave to the rovers, uh, well, feeling too good, you know what happens yeah. on board a ship. Yeah. And so <laughs> he went to the captain one day, and his head for home, I'm tired of the whole thing. So what the $2 million, what good is it? Look at the fun you have. If you really want some fun, you want to travel with the motion picture company, as an employer and get uh, for which you get paid and get all these good times and boy you have the time of your life if the company today is lenient but today they uh, but in the time when I when uh, in my time when I when we made movies that was just a glorious that was a heaven we should really pay the company to let us go on those trips. Did you have to build a complete new studio down in Florida? We, we built an entire studio. We rented a lot, a clean lot, and we laid a floor 400 by 400 feet, and we built steel girders up round, steel girders uh, six, ten inches in circumference, like gas pipes. 20 feet high, that's where I came in. They asked me, how high do you want this? And I said, better make it 20 feet. Why? Because the higher, the less heat you have from your reflective. And then we put, we strung wires across, crossways, six feet apart, and we hung 
curtains on that. White, plain white muslin curtains. Because the Cuban sun was strong enough to peek through there. Mm -hmm. But then later on we find they were too heavy and we had to ditch all the heavy curtains <laughs> and put on some of it. So the thin curtains that we used, if it may be interesting to you, sure. The material that was used at that time was Nainsook. Nainsook. You can buy it today in the store. That is the finest, thinnest material made that you can, or the lightest penetrating. Mm -hmm. Now, an ordinary bed sheet today, which we first used, was heavy. Thick, it was too heavy. So, Nainsook is the thing. Mm -hmm. Of course, they have other materials which are more expensive, but that uh, that's the best, cheapest thing and the best to use. Mm -hmm. And Cuba, we were happen to be lucky with Cuba because in Cuba they they just do nothing but business in linens, linens, and muslins and linens. The whole island of Cuba is saturated with it on account of the heat. They use it. So uh, we were very lucky to get. When you were <coughs> in Florida, did you uh, get your actors from around there, or did you take any We got uh, all the actors from around there. You did all the extras. Uh -huh except one or two which had to play parts. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but the stars we bring, we brought with us. Yeah. Uh, and they, they all know their onions pretty good. They that was the day, and I remember, this is the day of the silent movie, or words are spoken on the, in titles, titles yeah. made, but mm -hmm. we still have to speak the words. Yeah. <clears throat> and Dolly, I think Saul Dolly was, uh, at that time, I think he was one of the very best best directors there was at that time, yeah. which he maybe very. <clears throat> then after you were down in Florida, then uh, a whole winter, then you came back again to New York. Now, uh, pardon me. Now, now these films in Florida were mailed back to Edmund S. Porter, and he himself personally would develop all those films. He did. Yeah. Yes, sir. Did he always do the cutting on them too? Until we got the third company, and then Porter, we all urged them into giving up that. Why do you kill yourself developing at night? Then he finally said, well, uh, it was a tricky business to develop film on drums and scratch them all up. Someday a whole reel would get all scratched to pieces because it would flap loose and so on. No. So uh, then finally, after the third year, Porter gave up the development, and he hired six men to go in the darkroom. And he felt much better about it, too. Mm -hmm. But he still couldn't keep out of the locker room. Back on him, he'd go in there and I'd watch the fellow. <laughs> yeah. uh, you were down in, in Florida that whole winter, then? That the whole winter, we made about uh, 20 productions. Yeah. 20, I know. And, uh, <clears throat> no, how are we? We're talking about... Florida. Florida. Did, did you come back after those 20 productions and did you go back to New York or did you go right to Cuba? Oh, pardon me, sir. Now, this is, I think should be interesting to you. Yeah. While we were in, <clears throat> just to, to uh, reminisce on the old time, the old way of making mo movies, and uh, this was in 1912. 1912, Cuba. Beautiful sunny days. Every day. And where, where our daily work would consist of rising at five in the morning, the actors, not me. The actors arise at five, they stick on their makeup, or sometimes they'd make up out on sea, on sea. But we would leave the hotel by 5.30 or 6. 
And they'd had they they and the the chefs didn't like the idea on account of getting breakfast for all of us. We were about twenty in the troop, and we we traveled by by um, uh, carriage, uh, what the Cuban carriage, a little one like the Surleys with the tassels on it. We had three of those with. Each one has two jackasses, mules otherwise, but they looked awfully small, but they could pull 12 people up a hill and you never saw anything like it. And we would travel uh, for four hours by these jackasses because it would be it's the cheapest way because we didn't travel further than them. We never traveled more than 10 or 11, 12 miles. But when we went further, one time I remember we went to Mentancer, then we we took an old Winton. <coughs> we hired automobiles, which were very expensive at that time, uh, $180 a day or something like that. And, uh, <coughs> and uh, well, it, it was. I have photographs to show of these uh, carriages with the jackasses pulling the movie troupe. <laughs> the funniest thing you ever saw. And we traveled. We left the hotel. Click, 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 click. No way they would go. They wouldn't go fast because they just wouldn't. They would just go a slow trotting pace, but they'd keep that pace up until we reach our destination. They wouldn't stop once. Not even for water. They were tough, tough mules. I never saw anything like. We would be perspiring and sweating and everything, and we would cry for a stop in water, and the driver says, no, if I stop these mules, they'll never start again. <laughs> so we kept on going until we always reached our destination. How long were you in Cuba? Uh, 20, 20 weeks. We were there 20 weeks, and then we averaged uh, uh, one week on a production. When it came Saturday and Dolly would come to me and says, Henry, Henry, we got to get these. They got six more shots. We got to get them tonight. I says, well, we'll make it moonlight. Okay. He says, fine, we'll make it moonlight. <laughs> then we made, a, we made all undertime negatives, but which, uh, they, they look very artistic. Uh, and sometimes the producers would say, give us more of that artistic stuff. <laughs> undertime negatives, that's all they were. <laughs> Uh, in between the time when you were in Florida and the time that you went to Cuba, what did you do in the, that one winter in between? Did you mean, did <coughs> no, you go back uh, to Florida? No, uh, Florida, uh, <coughs> I went to Florida when I, when I finished with Edison. I was there about seven years and uh, I had the, the run of the studio pretty well. I don't know, that's, that's the way it went and I thought I... Uh, oh, Edwin S. Porter had left. He went to the Imp. <clears throat> and then after he left, I kind of felt as if I lost my daddy. <laughs> really, he taught me everything, and he knew. He knew trick work. He knew all the tricks, glass shots, everything. Did you use those in yes. the early days? Yes, Edwin S. Porter used glass shots, but in a small way. No. So now, I don't know. I would like to know where he got those ideas. You know, you have to get ideas for mm -hmm. that. Did you and use then, any model shots in those days either? But Little model shots. And oh, double exposure. That is where uh, I have to say this. This is truthfully speaking. Uh, at uh, today, double exposures and trick work is all made by 
half a million dollar equipment yeah. with eight cameramen on yeah. the job. We did that all ourselves. Edwin S. Porter and myself, we put on the Battle of Trafalgar, all uh, trick work with little battleships and double exposed clouds and double exposed storms in all this. And we did that all on our negative by count. Is this in the Battle of Trafalgar? Yes. You know we have the original negative yeah. at Eastman House? We and, have that and I herewith must give credit, all the credit, to Edward S. Porter for surely guiding me in regards to trick work and yeah. insisting and bawling me out and kicking me in the shin. You can't do that. Get some more film and do it again. Mr. Porter, I did so and so. You shouldn't do it. Don't do anything unless I tell you. Just you go wrong. I've made tests for, for five years on this stuff. So, uh, and he generally is always right. Uh, but I'm like all the rest of the young boys entering a new business and getting smart and want to show up the boss. You can't do it. You better <laughs> abide by the rules and take it easy. Be humble in thy ways, my dear man. <laughs> That's right. <After> <clears throat> After Porter had left and you would worked with Dolly for a while, did you continue working with uh, Dolly until you left Edison? Uh, I continued working with Dolly because Porter was then taking over the management instead of producing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because he had to watch the other five, then we had five producers, he had to watch the other five producers starting them out, setting their production schedule and telling him where to go, he did that all himself, and he kind of liked that job, and yeah. and he didn't care uh, then anymore about producing himself. As he saw, the results on the screen were very good, and so why shouldn't he go back to producing? And he, he had a very responsible job there to guide five directors to uh, always successful productions. They were always very good. Our pictures always made very good sense. They always had a marvel or a very good sense to it. Mm -hmm. And we had very little, we had hardly any uh, blood or knifing or burglary or crimin criminology, featured criminology and showing you how to burn down Billy. We had no things like that. Mm -hmm. No schooling of, of, of the public on how to do bad things. Mm -hmm. we, we avoided against what now. I think the Edison program has something to do with that. Somebody in Edison said something. The moral, the moral program of that mm -hmm. time was guided, I think, by the Edison office. Mm -hmm. They they had a little something to do, say, with what what we produced. They would we would have runs. We would always have a run every week for ourselves, and then they'd have a run in the big big studio with all the uh, employees. All the employees of the Edison company would see our movies, what we did. They would vote on it. This is no good, and that's no good. Why do you do this? And that's how we made our movies at that time. But we never, we never got worried from the studio. They didn't tell us, but they told Porter. Yeah. You can't do that. Don't stab the man here. Don't show the blood there. And uh, and that I thought was very. It was a clean, wholesome, good company to, at that time. Uh, we produced very good pictures. Did uh, Porter always do the cutting? Did he always edit? Titling, the uh, supervising the title. No, no, the, the cutting. The cutting, always. Yeah. Most every picture he cut for until he got tired and disgusted, and then he, until he got to the point where he went away to the imp. Mm -hmm. 
because they made them that big offer. Yeah. <clears throat> and from the imp, he stayed with the imp. Porter stayed with the imp company. Uh, I don't know whether it was the imp or Rex or Rex, some it, Rex. Rex it was, yeah. Rex. It was a, they were all universal. But uh, yeah, that, but a it was a small concern. It doesn't make any difference yeah. what the name of it is. Rex it, is Rex. it was the Rex. And um, at, uh, from the Rex, Porter had an offer by uh, Daniel Froman and Adolf Zucker. They made him an offer come with us. We'll give you the run of the show. They hired him to put on the whole show of the Paramount Studio motion picture industry mm-hmm. and to put that show on is like you stand on the door putting up a new million dollar building mm-hmm. with 5,000 employees to find room and space for their offices. Yeah. And that was a big thing and they didn't know, Zucker didn't know and uh, at that time he just, oh Zucker had a little bit of an office. And finally, he moved out of that office and moved into the Paramount Studio office. Mm-hmm. That's where I worked, too. I worked in Paramount for seven years. This is a hot one, how I come to work for the Paramount. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, so Edwin S. Porter, <clears throat> I was working for Paramount at, at, for Edison at that time, and I got the, uh, they raised me to $60 a week, and Porter offered me 150 to come with him. And then I said, well, the little company maybe goes out of business and I'm out of a job. I stayed with Edison, but I should have gone. I should have been like all the rest of this uh, hot Americans. A hot American is one that takes all opportunities. A dead American is one that hems and haws and procrastinates. And I procrastinated and I stayed at Edison's. And then until I became until I saw all the other firms growing up. There comes the Tannhauser Film Corporation. Mr. Height, who then Tannhauser started the Tannhauser Corporation, which was bought out by uh, Mr. Height at Chicago Howard Hughes. He was a big shot like Chicago, like Howard Hughes yeah. in Chicago, only not quite as much as big as Howard Hughes. But Height bought up the place and he, uh, he contacted me through a, through a phone call, not himself personally, but he said, come on over, I want to talk to you. So I went over to Hyde and I, they offered, they doubled my salary. And that was something, boy. <laughs> when was this, about 1912? Was that when you left Edison? Uh, that, 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 no, that was 1914. Then I went to, uh, I should have gone with Porter. That was I could have had Henry says you can make a fortune here. I'm going to make a fortune with this, but he he didn't make a fortune with the Rex. But the Paramount got a hold of and he made his fortune with the Paramount. And and then uh, then when Paramount got too big, I if I'm right I may say this, then Paramount spread out. They spread out into ten companies and they spread out to six companies in California and six companies in the East and it got so big that they. I don't know what happens, whether they froze out Adolf's uh, Porter or what. Anyway, I knew Porter wasn't satisfied with with his situation, and he cried to me one night and he said, "Well, Henry, it isn't all it isn't all so nice as you think it's going to be when you change jobs." Yeah. So he says, "I'm through with Paramount, but I get to have I get plenty out of it." Now I don't remember whether it was eighty thousand or eight hundred thousand. He, uh, Porter got a large sum of money 
<coughs> from the Belmont, which he then immediately invested in the Simplex Projection Machine Corporation, and he raised their sales, almost tripled their sales, by making a few improvements on the projector. And uh, that's as far as I know as Edwin Porter is gone. I don't know whether, is he still living today? No. No. <coughs> Oh, yeah. oh, now he, got he, he was a wonderful man. Yeah. Oh, a man of few words, but very definite. Mm -hmm. uh, something like Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison was a man of few words, but very definite. Did, did you see my I that? contacted Thomas Edison uh, once every two weeks in the studio. I was his pet cameraman. I used to photograph uh, quite a few of the inventions that were going on over there in, in Orange, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I did them sometimes in other studios. At, uh, did, did Porter usually have a cigar? Oh, Porter always smoked cigars. No. Yes, <clears throat> but uh, he, he smoked them cautiously, not too many. He smoked them mostly after after lunch. When he'd come after lunch, he'd light a nice cigar. Mm -hmm. And the posers he assumed uh, in lighting that cigar podium was wonderful. I said, someday I'm going to get a wonderful portrait of you and a cigar. I said, well, why don't you? We never got to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now it got you the, to the uh, Tannhauser Company. Then how oh, let me see. Then Edwin S. Porter, he went, he went with the... Well, that, that was the end of my line with Edwin S. Porter. And uh, now <clears throat> I was then at... Uh, I was then still at... Uh, then you went to Edison. Then I went from Edison to Tannhauser. Yeah. How long were you there? Because about? they offered me to double my salary, yeah. and uh, oh, I felt just like a young uh, bird coming into life yeah. because I could have everything I wanted. They, Mr. Hyde, the boss, said to me, "Now, Henry, come in. They dined me and wined me, and I used to go to his house nights, and they were awfully nice to." Because they they wanted to make a big success and they wanted all the efforts that you had. That was good and I understood that and I was willing and gladly. Yeah. There are many opportunities in my life that I have had in many many contexts which which if I had taken advantage of it I could be a wealthy man today. But God thank you for my health. I rather have my health than all the millions in the world. Money don't mean a thing. If if you it's what you do with a few dollars that you get. Yeah. How long did you stay with Tannhauser? <clears throat> uh, I stayed at Tannhauser about five or six years. Uh -huh. While I was in Tannhauser, <clears throat> I was I I'm sorry I have to say this because uh, why keep it secret? No. I was ace high there. Yeah. When I walked in the studio, I could feel that all the all the mechanics, all the blueprint followers, all the developers and printers and everything. Hello, Henry. Hello, hello, hello. What do you want? What do you want? What can I do? What do you want? <laughs> well, and when now I did want a lot of things. There was never a day when I came in the studio boy, where I didn't ask for a hundred little things that were not there and we made them. Yes, sir. Reflectors. They when I came there, they had reflectors two by two. When I when I finally I said no. I said all these. I went into Mr. Hyde's office and I said all these reflectors are just they don't give you any light and they're too hot. And let's make uh, six by eight reflectors and hang them up high. And mm -hmm. and he says you do anything you want to. Mm -hmm. 
and I renovated the whole studio, raised all the lights and put some spotlights and, and uh, bought some new spots, had some new spots made by Klieg Brothers, which weren't made, and Klieg Brothers said, well, you can't get big lenses like that. Those large uh, lenses cost $600, and Tanner says, get three of them. <laughs> <laughs> so we waited six months for three large condensers about, uh, oh, I forget what size they were. It was really interesting. And did they throw a light? They throw a light about a whole, well, almost uh, a block. You could light up a close-up with it, something like a sunlight arc, mm -hmm. a high concentration of arc lamp. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. And we had to get even special carbons for that from the carbon people. Yeah. And by that time, they had uh, aluminum uh, carbons that made light like aluminum carbons, like the Aristo carbons. I forget the name of them, but anywhere of the oh, they'd make a bright white light. Was the Tannhauser plant at New Rochelle? No, uh, your Tannhauser plant was at New Rochelle, and that little consign they made a million dollars inside of a year. It's all little pictures, little bits of ordinary pictures. Mm -hmm. Crazy little movies, fellas running around, copying from Charlie Chaplin, doing all kinds of things like that. Making small movies, nickel pictures. Yeah. But they would run all over the United States because they had a booking, a good booking. Yeah. And uh, a new, the Arrow, I think it was the Arrow, the Arrow Film Corporation, they had the, they had the, uh, the control of the renting out of these movies to ship them all out. Mm -hmm. They used to make three to four hundred copies. Every time we'd make a movie and finish that other day, by Monday, to, by the next week, there'd be three hundred copies shipped out. Mm -hmm. Now imagine all the money coming in from these copies. Yeah. Monday they come in from this town, Tuesday they come in from that town. One reel rented out would give you a hundred, two hundred checks running in two hundred different towns. So you see, if you got a hundred reels running, after five years you got a thousand reels running. You got two hundred thousand checks coming in from all over the place. Mm -hmm. Fifty dollars, eighty dollars, ninety dollars, two hundred dollars. You figure that up. Mm -hmm. That's more than than Woolworth dime business. It certainly is. Yeah. Were you assigned to one director when you went <coughs> to Tannhauser, or did you work with a lot of them? No, I I I was I was assigned to. Uh, uh, let me remember the name all day. God, I. Who was it? Oh, Howell Hansel was one of their good directors, and I, I made mostly all the, the finest picture ever made and come out of New York, including today. I could we could run that film today called The Deemster, by Hall Kane. And Mr. Hall Kane, the writer from London, came to New York to supervise that production. Not to have anything to say, but to sit in on it and suggest. Mm -hmm. And every day we were shooting the picture with Howell Hansel directing, and uh, Rock Island uh, location in Rock Island. We stayed there three weeks to do all the scenes, and to this day I think that picture could hold its own. Mm -hmm. Very beautifully done, the costumes and everything perfectly correct. Was written uh, was a very good story. That must have been around 1916 or so, wasn't it? Yeah, 1916. That's it. Howell Hansel, director. He's a very good director. I forgot to ask you about E.W. <coughs> Griffith. Didn't you work oh, for Oh yes, for a and bit? then, then from from uh, 
there always comes a lull in the motion picture industry during many years you will find that there always comes a lull including today you will find a layoff uh, and that holds good with all the stars and cameramen that are working today there's a layoff all right there was a layoff and this layoff was quite a little while and in the meantime of a layoff we cameramen we snoop around and i wasn't the kind that go and go i'm not interested in any sports I'm only interested in photography, and so we'd go and visit other studios. We'd snoop around, and so I snooped around and went over to D.W. Griffith, and he knew me. He said, hello, Henry, come in. How is everything? Are you working? No. He said, well, you want to die? It was out of a clear sky. I didn't even expect it. D.W. Griffith. Uh, Billy Bitzer was a very uh, good friend of mine. and by, by the way, Bitzer, Bitzer, Billy Bitzer was one cameraman that really uh, almost made close to a quarter of a million up to maybe $300,000 in, in money that he had, but he didn't use it wisely. I don't know what he did with it, but uh, mm-hmm. that's, 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 <laughs> that's the excitableness of uh, the motion picture. Please understand that the motion picture industry, when you are working in it and around the set with so many people and so much going on, during all these years, you become uh, you become uh, very ex- uh, of an ex- very neurotic nature. You are yeah. snappy. Yeah. The mayor walks in, for instance. The mayor walks in on the set. I remember this very well. Everybody gets up. They can't all say good morning, but it's a greeting. Yeah. And that tenseness, that tenseness that he produced, there is only. One way that I can express that tenseness is all over, no matter where you go in any studio. You hire a new director from Europe and give him a big million-dollar production in 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 in, in uh, Metro Goldwyn Mayer tomorrow. And you walk in on the set on the second day with a big. If he happens to start on a big scene, you will see a very tense moments here and there and here and there. Everybody's on key, mm-hmm. and that that tenseness uh, holds good. When you have money, you lose your money in that tense tenseness. Yeah. Uh, how, how long did you work for Biograph? Was it just a question of a month? Well, I worked, oh, wait a minute, let, let us finish with D.D. Griffith, if you may, pardon yeah, me, sure. uh, excuse me. Uh, <clears throat> after D.W. offered me a job, I looked over the belly and he hollered, yes, come on, look at all the cameras we got here. Well, he had five new Biograph cameras, which were cost $15,000 a piece, hmm. made by a uh, very high engineer figured out, and this camera was made with the 16, with the Thomas Edison perforations. So Edison and gave gave the uh, biograph. I think it was the biograph got the first uh, ruling. Uh, what would you say? The first uh, uh, order to be permitted to use that. Preparation, you know. I don't know whether it was a patent on it or not, but Biocab was the first one that made uh, uh, for themselves. They made these five good big cameras, uh, 18 inches wide and 20 inches long, and the height was two feet high. Mahogany on the outside, metal, all metal, brass, metal lined, and the camera inside. Great big cumbersome machinery, but very delicately made. It worked very good. It was a biograph cameras. Mm-hmm. 
and that that Ben uh, Billy Bitzer began with by with with uh, D. Double Griffith with the biograph in New York while we were shooting at Edison. They were still using the old finger pull-down movement, which is uh, three inches wide, which each picture is three inches wide. Billy Bitzer, I saw Billy Bitzer personally use the finger movement on those cameras on Blanche Street because the new cameras hadn't been tested yet. And when I worked for the biograph, I was merely I was put on there with DW on Judith of Bethulia, the photograph. Billy Bitzer is the first cameraman, and I was so uh, there wasn't any such thing as second cameraman and first cameraman. There was just all cameramen. But anyway, I was just ran another camera under the supervision of Billy Bitzer. And, and was he clever? Well, he was a very clever boy. There was nothing, he didn't he couldn't figure out. He was something like all the rest of the fellows and Thomas Edison. No matter, no sooner they look at an object, what can I improve? What can I do to better it? How can I do it? How can I make it more beautiful? And that was uh, Billy Bitzer was saturated with that. That's why he made he made uh, very beautiful close-ups of uh, by a light box, which is could be outmoded, say outmoded. But anyway, it was an idea. Nobody else had any ideas like that until. Today, we couldn't do that today anymore because it doesn't pay it's too much. And I worked on Julian of Petolia and I worked on one or two others as the operative cameramen were under Billy Bitzer. And then I went back to Tannhurst. They were, said, well, come on, where have you been? I've been shooting with Griffith. They said, well, oh. I was hoping to get a, because my, my respect and regards for DW at that time, at that very particular time, was Ace high. I said, that's the fellow I'd like to be with. And I used to pal around nights with Billy. We used to go and see movies and see theaters and come and have a midnight supper and then go home. Some night I'd sleep in his town. Some night I'd have to take him home to my house. Oh, what times we had. Why, oh, why? And, um, <laughs> Where did you go to work on Judith at the studio? Were you working in the studio or...? Um, in the, I worked in the studio, oh, by the way, and there was something that came up... <coughs> Wait a minute. That made a hit with Griffith. I made a hit with Griffith. Just one thing, one little thing. You know, while working on the set, all the cameramen sitting around and all the directors seeing is the scene being put on. And when you see a thing put on, then you get ideas. Oh, this and that, and I would do this, I would do that. So there was a scene we had shot for almost all morning of a scene with Blanche, Blanche Sweet, I think it was, Blanche Sweet? Yeah. Blanche Sweet, a crying scene of a scene in Judith of Bethulia where she scours her body with ashes and she wears a potato sack and her hair is down in the front of her face and she's supposed to cry and burst out terrific sadness and and she couldn't she cried but the tears wouldn't show. We took them. We developed them. Next day the tears don't show. What do we do? So we started all over again. That's this is the second day. Now it was in my mind the tears don't show, the tears don't show, the tears don't show, the tears don't show. So then they started the same tears again and barely moved some lights around the sides and that didn't help too much. It helped a little bit better. I said, Oh, I said, I think I have an idea, Mr. 
Billy Bitzer and Mr. Griffith, he, he turned around and saw me talk to Billy. He said, well, Henry, what is, what's the idea? Anything good? I said, yes, let's try, why not try a, a mirror laying right underneath of her face, out of line of the picture? And that would, <clears throat> and place the mirror so that the light shoots in the mirror and you refract the light onto the tears. Good, we tried it, that's it. <laughs> and all day that we said, <laughs> All the devil you said, I'll get you the cigar later, Henry. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Oh, boy, those are the little wonderful things that happen in movies. Did you go out on location with it at all for Judith? Or this, was this in New York? This was in New York, wasn't it? Yeah, this was in New York. And you were doing uh, just interiors on it there, weren't uh, you? Uh, just, well, that was just all interiors. Yeah. And uh, then by then uh, that was uh, that on two pictures I was there with with Bitzer and Griffith and that's where I met Joe Ella, who was developing all of D. W. Griffith's film and he was still using the drums. Mm -hmm. And I said to Joe, uh, don't you know we we have racks over in our place? We knocked off the drums. He says we're going to take all the drums out next week. And he took me says I'll take you to the dark room. And their dark rooms were. 75 feet long, 20 foot high, and oh, long places. They had so many drums. Mm -hmm. And so they did what they, and that's where I became to, uh, interested in what Joe Ella was doing. And mm -hmm. Joe Ella was just developing, man. He was very good on developing. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he developed his negative soft, soft, soft. Mm -hmm. And how did he get them to develop so soft? May I spell the secret? Sure. All the other developers know it, but they don't, I don't know what they do today. Well, uh, Joe Eller, in order to make the film soft, I, I, I'm quite sure that he soaked it first in uh, <coughs> borax. Mm -hmm. A weak solution of borax, the amount I don't know, for two minutes to swell the amount, and then he would develop Immediately, without washing it, uh, maybe maybe with washing, washing off the borax, and then putting it in, into the developer. And then he would develop it for a prolonged period of, I think, 45 minutes. And that would bring out all the detail and no contrast. Mm -hmm. And I think that holds good today. I think if you want to monkey around, waste that much time. Mm -hmm. I believe today films are developed, and I don't know. Three minutes? You don't? No, I, I don't really know. Well, we oh. have to drop that. <laughs> and now, uh, I'm going to open this door again. Cause yeah. I, you know, uh, now that you went back to, um, to Tannhauser then, <coughs> after being with the Griffith for a little while, you went back to Tannhauser yeah. <coughs> And then uh, here's a very interesting episode in my uh, life that I wish to talk about. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, Picture after picture in the Tannhauser Film Corporation, Mr. Tannhauser personally was so pleased and so thrilled <laughs> with the beautiful photography. He never kept, he never, he was just photographically minded. He was, and, uh, and he made so many compliments that one day after lunch, he said, I want you to come in the office. And I came in the office and he says, how would you like to become a stockholder? I could have become a stockholder. And he says, I'll, and uh, I should have become a stockholder then in the Tannhauser, which later on sold out for a million dollars. About six months later, Mr. Tannhauser, uh, Mr. Height, passed away, and Tannhauser bought the studio over again 
uh, I think for a million dollars or something because the business was running wonderful. Uh -huh. But then, <clears throat> uh, and then that time, uh, at that time I, I had a brother, Jules, and uh, <coughs> one I used to Sundays we I used to go to his house and play pinochle. And one fine day, he says to me, "You know, Henry, I'm kind of tired of what I'm doing. I was wondering whether you think there would be could be something worked out that I could do in the in the picture line." I said, not knowing that he was an intelligent and a college graduate from a Germany university, that he was a little bit more a little bit more more smarter than I was. Uh, <coughs> Uh, from uh, that point, of, from a scholarly point of view, so I said, "Yes, by all means." I said, "I can make a cameraman out of you. You have the you have the photographic knowledge." And so uh, we, I, uh, I said, "I'll tell you what you do. <clears throat> uh, you'll come to my house and stay with me in my house for two weeks and stay there and don't uh, don't go home nights. You stay with me for two weeks and then we'll talk cameras. We take the cameras apart. We'll put the cameras together again. We'll go out and shoot tests with movies. We develop them. You develop them with me in the darkroom. And I taught him all the technique of as much as I knew. And... Um, then he went out by himself for a Sunday afternoon. He shot some scenes and he developed them and he showed them to me and I said, that's good, now you're a cameraman. <clears throat> so I, I took my brother Julius and uh, he got a brand new light suit, a very sporty looking outfit, new pair of shoes, a cane, and uh, we, uh, I wore, I used to wear a cane at that time. Well, he just happened to have a cane. We, uh, <coughs> uh, a Malacca cane, I remember very well, well, with a silver band on it. And there, there he was all dressed up, and so was I. And I said, now come up and I'll introduce you to Mr. Hyde. <coughs> and the minute I introduced my brother to Mr. Hyde, my brother is tall, six foot one, good looking, very nice. Uh, I have to say that because he is. Uh, and uh, Mr. Hyde, and from the minute he met Mr. Hyde, those two, they, they were just together, and Mr. Hyde took my brother to his home at night. I said, do you want to come, Henry, too? I said, no. I said, I'm going home, because I knew it was a job that was coming up. And he said, Mr. Hyde said, I'd like to little know, uh, know a little more about you, and, and uh, you, you will come up and have supper with me at my house. So he went to Mr. Hyde's supper that night, uh, to supper that night. And the next day he came home, and the night before he woke me, he came home, he came to my house that same night at one o'clock, and he said, what do you think? I got a good job, good job. And, and he asked me what salary I wanted, and I said, I'm going to leave that entirely to you. You know what it's worth, but you can't tell what I'm worth until after I shoot a picture. He said, you'll shoot a picture next week, and Henry, can, and Henry is not on, he's off the picture, and he can sit in and watch your work. Now I took, I took. Uh, in, incidentally, I, uh, uh, my brother had a schooling of two weeks with the movie camera, uh, with my movie camera, no. going in and out and doing things. So no. he he was very familiar, and there wouldn't be a cameraman that could tread the machine any quicker than he could, any better. No slip up, nothing. No no difficulty, no buckle up film or nothing. That was all perfect. Mm -hmm. So I knew that, mm -hmm. and when you know that, then then you can command. 
command the job, and that's why I went to high height. And the and the, the only time I'll help someone get a job is when I know they're good. If they're good, then they can back you up. So that was it. And from the minute after Julius's first picture in the Tannhäuser Film Company, I was through there. <laughs> I was number two. It just that's just the way it happened. Well, he happened to get a good story with a good director and good scenery and good fancy shots, and boy, oh boy, it looked like a million. <laughs> so Mr. Hyde says, you're all through. <laughs> well, my brother stayed with the Tanner Film Company four years until the Anita Stewart called him one day on the phone and saw his pictures and called him, and then he went over to Vitagraph. And there, my brother stayed in Vitagraph with such stars as Anita Stewart and all, with all the old stars that they had for 10 years, steady, mm-hmm. never idle, no layoffs. Wonderful, isn't it? Yes. Where's the money? <laughs> and what, what were you doing in the meantime? What did, how in the meantime, then I, I stayed with Tannhäuser, and then from that minute on, I became independent. <clears throat> now, uh, I didn't want to go back with Edison uh, at uh, all they would pay is $75, that's all they would pay, and I didn't want to do that. And then uh, then I, I became independent, like all the rest of these boys that are independent, and they get good money when they work, and my average job in New York was, uh, I always uh, looked for, there was always new productions coming out, I can, uh, wait a minute. After I left Tannhäuser, well, uh, there were always uh, new productions coming out, and there was one production with Marshall Nealon, Presents The River's End by James Oliver Carver, Scenario by Francis Marion, no, by Marion Fairfax. Mm-hmm. Well, I happen to know Mrs. Marion Fairfax, and she engaged me to do the picture for Marshall Nealon which uh, happened to turn out to be a very, very excellent production with, uh, with Louis Stone uh, as the star. And, uh, well, that was one of the companies. And I stayed with Marshall Leland for, oh, I could have stayed with him forever, but uh, they, he had quite a few layoffs, layoff, picture, and layoff, and so on and so on. That's a picture of my brother. Oh, yes. And uh, then came, <coughs> then came, the, then I went over from uh, Neyland, I went over with uh, the Arrow Film Corporation in the Times Building, New York City. W.E. Schallenberger, uh, owner and pro- uh, production manager, and this Mr. Schallenberger had the control of the Arrow Film uh, Company's uh, output of placing films. and. Uh, just, and, uh, just, a, just a minute, Mr. Kronjager. 